please stand with me as I read the word of God. And he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written. These people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teachings as doctrines, the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold the tradition of men. Those are some fascinating words from Jesus found in Mark chapter 7. And it's been fascinating to me over these last couple of years to wrestle with the idea of what it really looks like to build a life that has the ability to stand against the storms of reality and life and circumstances. In the last couple of years, we've discovered that many of the lives that we've built didn't have a foundation that was secure, steady enough to really hold up to what life will demand of it. Many people who thought that their lives were complete and had everything that they needed found the gaps. The brokenness found its way in, and we've been left reeling. So many people have even had almost an experience with uh, different church expressions, and people have become disillusioned to the fact that maybe church, Jesus, the community of God is even worthy of our effort, our energy, our time. And some of it's valid. Some of the critique is valid. Even as Jesus came to the earth and the Pharisees came up to him after watching his disciples, not washing their hands before they ate, which was part of the tradition of what it was to be a good Jew. You washed your hands. And they say, why is it that you guys don't wash your hands? And Jesus turns and says, listen, well did Isaiah speak about you. For you proclaim the teachings of man like they're the doctrines of God. The expression of faith as though it is faith itself the action as though it's the substance. And for us, I mean, we are after and relentless in our desire to, to push past the actions, past the traditions, past all that we have kind of just brought in with the soup of Western Christianity and gone, man, if Jesus was to show up today, what would he point to and say, that is the God, the truth that I live and die for, and I want you to do the same. And what are the things that he would point to and say, like, seriously, what are you guys doing? Like, he would have an opinion about the heart of what many of us call Christianity. You see, just as there was a vision of what it meant to be a good Jew in the time of Jesus, we live in a day where there's a um, adopted vision that many of us have of what it looks like to be a good Christian. So what we have today is a vision that many, maybe even of ourselves, wrestle with. Is that a vision that I want to live into? Does the Christianity or the image of what a faithful believer looks like in the world today, is that really worth living out? And is it going to produce the kind of life that I want to have in my existence? Many, of pe many people, 
particularly with this next generation. And my heart is, is broken because many have cast aside Jesus, confusing the traditions of man with the very way Jesus is. We can do a great good for God by embodying who he is and being a good and true image to the world of Jesus, or we can do a great harm to future generations, unbelievers, strugglers, and those wrestling by having a distorted image of who Jesus is, by importing our own ideas and our own wishes of what Jesus was like, and then living in that way towards the world, the world will easily look at a broken vision of Jesus and walk away going like, I want nothing to do with that. In today's day and age, we're talking a lot about, uh, you'll hear deconstruction, reconstruction, uh, renewal, reformation, all of these terms of like critique and analysis. The challenge that we find ourselves in today is not that as Jesus came, he had some critiques for the normal Jewish expression. So he would have the same today. In our church, we tried our best to focus primarily on the very heart of God. So we said, we want to be as simple as possible. Let's be uncomplicated in as many ways as we can. And we're going to focus on the primary things that Jesus makes clear in Scripture, which is, Love God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind and your strength, all of your person. Man, simplicity is not easy. Simplicity is a narrow focus because what I believe is if we don't get that right, we're not going to be able to love one another, which is the second passion of God, which is to see a humanity that actually cares and loves each other as he loves us. And so for us, we're trying to be focused on these primary things and resisting the urge to kind of just adopt what's working over here in this church. Oh, that looks nice. Let's do that. Or, or what's been sexy in the past? Oh, let's do that. That sounds cool. We're trying to go, hold on. We're going to focus on the main things of God. And it's been my passion to say, hey, I'm not going to invite you to do things unless I am convinced that there is life to be found there. So three things we focus on here are communion with the Father. Jesus himself purchased the ability for us to be bound with the divine for eternity. In coming in the flesh, Jesus chose to eternally bind himself to us, for better or for worse. Secondly, he, he has actually provided for us to be not only just individuals who, okay, now I'm not going to hell anymore. No, he says, and I'm going to make you belong to my family. I'm, I'm going to take a place in my banquet table in eternity, and I'm going to etch your name in the back of your chair because it's yours and you belong. Every one of us. And so we focus not only on communing with God, enjoying the goodness of Jesus, but also in partaking in the family of God in community. And, and the beauty is that God always intended for us to become more and more comfortable in his presence, but also alike him in his ways, so that him being a God of love and passion and rescuing when there is need, 
he says, I want you to begin to become like me and join in my ways of love and sacrifice and pursuit of others in a way of common suffering as he did in the cross. He invites us to be a people who are a part of his journey and his mission. And so we focus not only on communing with God, community together as the people of God, but also participating in his redemptive work, his rescuing work of compassion. God has placed people in each of our hearts because those people are in his heart. And he energizes us through his spirit to be the tangible presence of him on earth to them. What a beautiful, beautiful way to live our lives, to pursue these things. Now, we're living in a world where there have been lots of different visions of what it looks like to be a Christian. And, and there's no shortage of people who are going like, no, I don't want that vision. I don't want that anymore. Maybe it's some of your neighbors, your friends, or your children, and you're, they're wrestling with the faith. And they're not wanting necessarily to be a part of it. They're not taking it and going like, oh, yeah, uh, that, that pastor on the stage, I want to become like him. They're going like, no, I'm good. Actually, my non-believing friends are nicer than that guy or that person or the way that, that, that I've been treated in the church. And so there's this tension, there's a deconstruction where oftentimes the risk that comes from deconstruction is, is that, it, it, yes, it criticizes, it, it, it will hold up something and analyze what is worthy of staying, and it'll be pulled apart. It's easy to deconstruct. Everybody's got an opinion. You know how the saying goes. They're not really useful in deconstructing unless we have the process of reconstruction, of renovation, of reestablishing. Because without reestablishing something, people are left with the pieces of broken faith. And deconstruction often leads to disillusionment. Disillusionment almost always leads to departure. And I don't know about you, but my neighbors and my friends and my families, the people who are wrestling in the world around me, I don't want to see them depart. I want them to stay and wrestle with Jesus. Even if that's outside of our church, even if that's outside of our own, like, Christian in, like, no, we need to be a people who have space where we allow others and we, excuse me, walk with others as they wrestle through their challenges. So we're going to be looking at this idea of what it looks like for us to not only um, analyze Western Christianity and going like, all right, is that consistent with what we want in our lives, but more so even with Jesus and his teachings? But we're also going to be building together. So for the next year, we're actually going to be um, starting to construct something in our lives um, of what it would look like if we were to design our lives for the sake of our thriving. Not out of necessity, not out of external expectations, and not out of guilt, shame, or duty. We are going to look at what it looks like for you and your spirituality, your practices are going to look different than mine. You know this very well. Some of you are very linear, and you're very patient with me as I 
paint pictures with words, right? Others of you are very like creative, and others of you are internal processors. Some of you are external processors. There are different ways that you are actually created uniquely, and God's okay with that. What the problem is, is when we build a church that's only built to really support one kind of person, there are a lot of people who struggle to even find their place and know God. And so there's a beautiful reality that's taken place for, for hundreds and hundreds of years, practices, sometimes they're called disciplines, but they're practices that are actually built off of the life of Jesus. And whether we know it or not, Jesus came not merely to come and rescue. He wasn't just this God in a bod. Jesus walked out perfect humanity. He walked out the way we were designed to walk out. How many of you guys have... No, I won't ask that. Um, Diets. There you go. Um, I'm sure that we participated in... It's probably... 40 different diets, types, right, that you can do, gluten-free, is that a diet, or is that just like a, yeah, anyways, Um, I'm showing my ignorance, Uh, throw out some of this, throw out some of that, keto, what's another one, well, South Beach, Whole30, Paleo, Paleo. Nutra, what, Nutra Systems, what was that one that was connected with the Christianity thing, there's a, a, a cult that came from it? Way down, come on. Some some ladies in the room are like, oh my gosh. Uh, I'm like, I left I left my water. Excuse me. So this is just an example. So there have been a hundred different kinds of ways of trying to build a healthy life. We're not going there. This is not what that is. I promise. But what I'm trying to say is what happens when you start to analyze the ideal and you bring science into it to understand the body and how it actually is intended to work? When we learned about like caloric intake and actually expenditures, like we start to learn how things are actually intended to function, our spirituality, our physical lives, our beings as holistic mind, soul, spirit, There is an ideal way that we were designed to work. And guess what? Most of us don't live that way. Actually, none of us do. But what Jesus is trying to do is not merely to save your soul so that you can, like, fight through, avoid guilt, sleep at night, and then go to heaven someday by the skin of your teeth. No, he is actually trying to rehabilitate or or reignite the humanness in you that you were designed to be. And that is what it is to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. It is that we bring and yield all of ourselves to the influence of Jesus. To not merely just be bossed in those areas. It's not that. It's to come alive in those areas, to have my mind renewed, to have my spirit come to life, to actually have my my body function in ways that it's intended to. The first practice that we're going to be walking through, and like John said, we already walked through this practice with our leadership team, it's it's Sabbath. And Sabbath was a, a cuss word to me back when I was growing up because I wanted to watch The Simpsons, and that was on a Sunday, and I wasn't allowed to watch that. It was more than Sabbath, but you know what I'm saying. 
And so I hated Sundays. I went to church. It was boring. We couldn't do what we wanted to do. That is not what Jesus designed Sabbath to be. It was actually intended to be a necessary part of our human rhythms. Man is not a machine. We are created to rest and move with the schedule of creation. So much of, I'm convinced, so much of the struggle that we have, even having energy and ambition and desire and eagerness to consistently follow Jesus or say no to self and yes to Jesus is down to us being exhausted because we're constantly going, always busy, doing too much. Our phones we can plug in so we never have to stop working if we do not want to do it, but we're not robots. Jesus is trying to bring out the life in us as he had envisioned it from the very beginning. Does that make sense? Okay, let's get to the Bible. Um, that was an unplanned intro, but there you go. Uh, 15 minutes and 30 seconds, go! Okay, so uh, we are in this beautiful text of Mark where Jesus says, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. Verse seven, in vain do they worship me. Notice this, Jesus uses this word which means useless. What you're doing is useless. Oh, were they doing nothing? No, these guys did a lot. It was a pain in the butt to be a very faithful, or a very faithful Jew in that day and age. Different dishes for different foods, washings, doing all. It was a pain. And Jesus is like, you're wasting your time. You know what? If I'm doing something that's killing me and like weighing me down and, and Jesus doesn't care about it, I'm like, please tell me. There's way too much already. Right? So what if Jesus is trying to free us from any and all traditions of man that are actually unhelpful and wasted energy? Praise be to God. If we only used our time for cultivating our souls with Jesus in, on things that actually were productive, man, I, I would show up to that. I'd set my alarm early to that. So how do we discover what's worth it? Because a lot of people in this day and age, they're going like, all right, so you cast a vision for what Christianity was. I'm good. I don't want that vision. And so I'm just going to do what I want to do. I'm going I'm to be undecided on Jesus, and I'm just going to kind of be in and around and, and let what happens, happens. Well, the challenge that we have is that where we do not have a vision it is dangerous. When you do not live from a blueprint, Matt, or from a plan in a strategy with a game or whatever it may be, things go sideways. Let's look at this passage here. So, in Proverbs 29:18, it's fascinating. Where there is no vision, one translation says, uh, the Greek uh, Hebrew is kaza, which is great. The people para or perish. Kazah means divine vision. Divine vision. There is vision that God has for your life, and if you are not in alignment with what his vision is, the word perish, para, is, it's like 
you will chuck aside all external restraints. You will run wild, which will ultimately lead to perishing. How? In our day and age, having nobody control me and nobody tell me what is morally right or wrong or should do or shouldn't do and everybody just watching each other like running with their heads cut off towards a cliff or clapping. Does it, does it feel good though for us to embrace this way of life is bonkers. It is bonkers. There needs to be some vision because there is a vision that is in the heart of God for us. The word um, in the New Testament for flesh is sarx. This means the internal human person, the flesh, the inner nature, which is driven by or distorted by our distorted orders. It's the good hungers that you have for engagement, satisfaction, hungers, thirsts, bent in the wrong direction. Sarks, flesh. Your flesh has a vision for your life. You may not have a vision for your life. Your flesh does. It wants to be satisfied, obeyed, pursued, answered to, and never left wanting. See, where there's no vision, your flesh has a vision. James says this in chapter 1, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then the desire, when it has run and when it is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Not only does your flesh have a vision for your life, Satan has a vision for your life. He wants to see you consumed, hurt, distorted, in pain, in separation, in sorrow. We're told in Scripture that Jesus says that I did not come to kill, steal, and destroy. That is Satan. I came to give life and life in abundance. See, Satan has a vision for your life. And we're told in Proverbs 25, 28, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. What do walls serve in the ancient days? Protection. So a person without self-control, you're like, I'm just going to do whatever my gut tells me. I'm like, I'm a, what do I feel like eating today? Or what do I want to do now? Should I watch another one of these episodes of this show on Netflix? If I'm just letting my flesh run and, and my desires drive, I am like fish in a barrel for Satan. He can come in, sweep in, and attack at any time, any way, because we lack self-control. Not only does Satan have a vision for your life, culture has a vision for our life. Culture would love to see a church that was silent, a church that didn't stand up, a church that, that either would live up to their vision, which is bigotry, anger, hatred, judgmentalism. They're fine with that kind of church because that's easily discarded and easily demonized and easily rejected. I don't want to live that vision. 
Nor do I want to live the vision that says that Jesus doesn't care about sin, that God is, is uh, indifferent to our interactions with each other, that, like, I don't want to live that vision either. Culture has a vision that they would love for us to live out, one that is definitely not life-giving. There's a great book I finished a while back. It's uh, called Live No Lies. And it's about um, how lives are changed and influenced and how things impact us. Quote by John Mark Comer, who wrote that, uh, it simply says this, the law of returns is simply this, you reap what you sow. That's the law. But applied to spiritual formation, sow a thought, you will reap an action. Sow an action, you will reap another action. If you sow some actions, you're going to reap a habit. Sow a habit, you will reap a character. Sow a character, you reap a destiny. Either in slavery to the flesh or freedom in the spirit. The idea that what we do impacts who we are becoming is the essence of what it is to become um, formed. We are being formed intentionally or unintentionally. What we watch forms us. What we do with our finances forms us. What we do with our time, our energy, our dreams, what we do in relationships, how we treat one another, how we think about ourselves, the thoughts we think, the lies we believe, all of these things form who we are. You think a thought, you think it again, it becomes easier and easier to do the same exact thing. And oftentimes our habits, small decisions that we consistently say, oh, it's just a thing, it's just a thing, it's no big deal. You are becoming the kind of person that does that thing. Does that make sense? So for us, particularly who um, have come up in certain, maybe more restrictive religious um, expressions, legalism, whatever, um, there's been a big turn away from like, no, I'm not, we're not going to do that thing. I don't need to read my Bible. I don't need to go to church. I can find Jesus on the lake. True. But to be honest, is that really cultivating? Is that yielding the kind of life that looks more and more like Jesus? Because what we do impacts who we are becoming. Tish Harrison Warren says this, she's a scholar, everything we do with our body touches our soul. You see, the spiritual stuff we do is not only what happens in this room and when your Bible is open or when you're desperate. (laughs) Everything we do impacts our spirit. When we stop and when we make eye contact and when we greet someone, when we show love, that blossoms our spirit. When, when I look at someone and see them in need and, I, and I'm too busy and I look away and I ignore them, something happens to my soul, even if it's minute and tiny. We are becoming by what we do. Therefore, what we do begins to carry significant weight as we think about our lives. There's a church in Corinth, 
and they were taking lightly what they were doing with their lives. They're like, you know what? Following Jesus is awesome. We used to be Jews, a lot of us. We used to have a lot of responsibility. But because of Jesus, we can do whatever the heck we want. I don't know if you even know this, but uh, you can't go to hell <laughs> if you trust in Jesus. And so they were getting up to all kinds of, all kinds of stuff, right? Stuff was happening in the church that people in society were like, what are you doing? Like, it's grace, man. And it looks nothing like Jesus. So that's the situation. Paul comes to them and addresses their, their favorite mantra, which is, all things are lawful for me. I can do it. In 1 Corinthians 6, 12, it says this, all things are lawful for me, you say, but not all things are helpful, friend. All things are lawful for me, sure, you say, but I will not be dominated by anything. You see, unless we have a plan for our life, our flesh will make a plan for us. And if we're not abiding in the love of God and allowing His Spirit to actually animate who we are and to rise to the moments of temptation, we will consistently be bullied and pushed around and enslaved and no longer in control of ourselves. Oh, we can do whatever we want, but you know what? Whatever you want is not always good for your soul. Sure, you can't lose your salvation if you've genuinely surrendered your heart to Jesus and said, forgive me for my sins, for my waywardness. Forgive me for, for going other than where you want me to be. Please be my King and my God and my Lord. You cannot lose your salvation. And that is a miracle because I'm sure I would have done it by now. Because of God's consistent, faithful, long-suffering, loyal love towards you. He cups your life in his hands, saying, nothing can strip you from my grip. Nothing. And as beautiful as that thought is, what we do with our lives, heart, mind, body, and soul, it drastically impacts the richness of your experience with him today. And it carries ramifications for your eternal experience. This is the truth. We are becoming whom we will be for all of eternity. And Jesus invites us he invites you to open your eyes and saying, man, your, your flesh, your hunger, your uncontrolled and unchecked appetites for X, Y, or Z, man, you are being dominated by that. And it's mercy that Jesus is saying it doesn't have to be that way. I came to conquer that which dominates you. There are things in, in our lives, all of us, we know. They're not going to wreck our faith. They're not going to make us lose our salvation. But they're not helping us as we become alive to God. It's not helping us to be more present to His will, His desire, His love. 
And so we have to be aware, we have to be cognizant. Our habits form us. So that leads us to the point of reconstruction. We will be building for ourselves components of what would make a rich life. So imagine, how many of you guys have had the pleasure or joy of fully designing a home for yourself? Anybody? One guy. <laughs> how was it? How was it to dream? How, how, but you, where did the vision come from? Because I'm sure you had a house you were living in. Before that, you had another house probably. And before that, you had the, the junky apartment that we all started in, right? Um, and so you had these visions of home. Just like we all have visions of what it looks like for us to live our lives fully for God. Now, before you allow your brain to go like, oh, I, I, would, I totally want to do that this coming year, but you know what? I, X, Y, Z is not going to make it possible. Jesus. He was homeless. Guy worked in the weather. He lived in the muck and the mess of life, and he is the epitome of abundant life. Therefore, our circumstances don't actually have the power to remove us from that. In fact, many of our circumstances that we're in today are actually the tools that God wants to use to scrape away the old so that new life can birth in our lives. So, for us, as we reconstruct our faith, when we say, okay, what pieces do we want to put together? And we'll be talking more about this next week. Um, you're going to hear the term rule of life. Now, when, I, when you hear the word rule, don't think so much like rules. Da, 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 da. Pastor David isn't going to make rules, okay? Jesus makes rules, and you get to make rules. My goal for you is that you and Jesus will make some rules that are unique to you, that you're convinced that, whoa, what if I build this little section in my life? And it's almost like this little flower bed. And I'm like, I'm going to build this flower bed for me and Jesus to grow some stuff. A few years back, I started one of my rules of life is the rule of first importance, which is the thing I do first in the morning is indicative of where my heart is at. Okay? So a rule of life is really what we do with our time. You all have a rule of life. Probably not on purpose. What's the first, shout out, what's your first thing you do when you wake up in the morning? Go to the bathroom. Go to the bathroom. It's a rule of life. Don't, don't, don't ask her to make you coffee before she goes to the bathroom, right? You break her rule, man, you're going to feel it. Right? We have rules that we function. What else do you do in the mornings? Brush your teeth, coffee. That is a rule of life. It's a part of what we do. Why do we drink a cup of coffee? Because we've been convinced that if I don't have this cup of coffee, man, I am going to be a ferocious tiger, and I'm going to get a headache, and I'm going to be angry, and don't talk to me about for the price of one latte a week. You know, that, that's, how, that's how serious we take it. It's a rule. But we prioritize and we build it into our regular rhythms because we are convinced it is going to lead to the life that we want to have. True? 
So for me, I sleep next to Steve Jobs. Uh, and every morning, I pick up Steve Jobs Jr. right here. And my temptation is to let Steve Jobs tell me about what's happening in the world, right? And, and to tell me who needs something from me or what's going on or, you know, all of it. And so me and Steve Jobs, we have our time in the morning together. And we sit there, and it's just lovely, and I'm building a beautiful relationship with this guy. In jest, I realized that what I did first with my time, my mind, my energy, it affected what happened after that. Sorry. And so literally this morning, I love soccer. I love it. And so literally this morning, I, I had... Uh, I, I was in my routine, um, and I, I pulled out my phone. I was like, oh, I wonder what the soccer game is. And I, and I started watching a replay. And then I remembered the spirit of God. It's like, hold on. Well, this is out, there's something out of, out of order. And I went, shoot, and I'm preaching on it today. Okay, Jesus, I love you more than I love soccer. Even though it's just a smart, it's a video. It's fine. It's two minutes long, Jesus. But me saying, pause, Jesus, you first. I want to sit and read the verse of the day, even if that's all it is. And sit with you and say, I love you. And it's just like, it's like me blowing Jesus a kiss. Like, I love you. I know it's tiny. I know it's stupid to even talk about Jesus, but I need you to know, and I need to know. I need to keep this heart in check because I am so prone to wander. And so a rule of life, and we'll continue to pull back the layers, is, is much more like that. What are the things that I should build into my life? because it's good for my soul and I believe that it's going to yield fruit as I sow seeds of the Spirit into my life. And so we'll be looking at Sabbath. That's one of the first things we're going to stop at. And it's going to be one of those things where we're going to experiment. We'll be talking about it for an eight-week series. We'll be doing groups where we get to discuss about it and try and fail and all that. And some of you are going to be like, man, when I do this little thing, I love it. And somebody else in the group is like, yeah, I do this other little thing, but it feeds into that communion with the Father, what I was made for. So, so you might go into the park and sit there and do a prayer walk with Jesus once a week. Or, or you might just say, I like that rule of first importance. I'm going to... I'm going to sit in my bathroom and spend time with Jesus. He doesn't mind. And I'm going to trust that Jesus, every time, like, as I do that, Jesus, even if it's not this emotional thing, no, it is creating in me rhythms and ways that aren't just plucked from this place and that, but they're actually things that Jesus did. Time with the Father, sitting in his presence. And so we'll be doing nine different practices over the next three years, little baby steps with lots of different experiments because we are full, whole people, not just 
heads on a stick, disembodied brains. Actually utilizing our olfactory system, tactile practices together, it does something to us. It, it helps to form our soul because just like doing anything touches our soul, doing the things intentionally for Jesus forms our soul after his likeness. So there's tons more that could be said about this. I apologize. Um, I was going to be teaching on Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. Haven't gotten there yet, and so I'm going to do that next week. Is that okay? Is that cool? Okay. Um, here's the beautiful thing. I'm going to end with this. Romans 12, 1. Here's a teaser. Paul says this to the believers. Close your eyes if you're willing. Brothers, I appeal to you. Therefore, because of God's beautiful mercy, you are able to present your bodies, heart, mind, soul, and strength before him as a sacrifice of worship. A sacrifice that is a pleasing aroma acceptable to God. This is our spiritual livelihood and worshipful being. It is offering ourselves to him. Jesus, we know that this is easier said than done to offer our whole selves to you. And Lord, we don't have the willpower, nor do we want to write another list of New Year's resolutions. Willpower can't bring about renewal. Guilt cannot bring about renewal. Shame cannot bring about renewal. The manipulation internal angst. God, God, we can't even think our way into renewal. You are renewal. You are freedom. And Spirit, you're among us even now, and, and I know that you're, you're moving ever more so towards us. Spirit of the living God, please. We need a divine vision. Because apart from the vision of what we are intended to be and do, we will just run amok. We're going to run after things. God, we're going to try hard at religion and do the stuff. And you're going to say, what are you doing? You're wasting yourself. God, we're, we're humbly here before you saying we, we need your vision. We need you to open our eyes that we may behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, the image of God who in, 
and his presence came and lived among us. He struggled and fought and hurt and cried and laughed and enjoyed and prayed and wrestled and fought. And you loved it every second. Oh, oh God, how beautiful is it that because of your mercy, because of your mercy, you invite us to live in your presence, to live as not destroyed sacrifices spent, but living, active, dynamic, wrestling, struggling, curious, afraid, all the emotions we come and lay ourselves before you, God. We say, Jesus, we want to be like you. We want to learn from your ways. We want to be formed into the people that you had envisioned from all eternity. Beautiful, delightful, pleasing, a sweet-smelling aroma. So God, where we are today, we just bring to you we want to be that song of praise. We want to bring joy to your heart. Oh, thank you, Lord God, that you find us acceptable, pleasing, as we struggle to live our lives for you. So wherever you're at tonight, I encourage you to pause. Take a second to let the words of Jesus settle in your heart. Ask the Spirit, is there a word that I am supposed to take to the core of my being before I take one step into this year? What am I hearing you say? Others of you, is there a picture, an image, God, that I keep seeing in my mind that you need me to hold with holy reverence before I take one step into this year? As you're receiving these words and images, I encourage you to acknowledge that before God. Say, God, I hear you. I see what you're showing me. Spirit, will you teach us what it is to internalize your life, to be renewed after your image. Thank you for laying down your life for us. Thank you for being the once and for all sacrifice. Oh Lord, we know no 
that we are yours. And so we offer everything we can, pathetic as it may be, let your spirit breathe deeply with joy our small offerings of self to you as we remember your death and resurrection in our place. Father, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. The table of communion is open during these next couple of songs, and I'll encourage you to think carefully about what Christ has done to create in you this new beginning in Jesus. God bless you.